this is the Sunday Sound of Dhamma, as usual, and um, we'll have about 10 minutes or so of meditation, and then I'll offer a Dhamma talk, and then there will be some time for questions or reflections from you. So we'll go ahead and begin with the meditation. And I'd like to begin with a little bit of movement, some gentle rocking of the body from side to side and from front to back. Maybe also moving the head and just releasing tension or releasing any habitual leaning. Allowing the body to settle into a balanced, upright posture. And turning the attention to the sensations of hearing. No need to strain at all, just allowing the sounds to arrive. Noticing the sensations of hearing. 
and allowing all the other sensations to recede into the background. Observing how the sensations of sound shift from moment to moment, 
how they arise and they cease. And now when you hear the bell, just staying with that sound, that sensation, all the way until the end. brings us to the end of our meditation for today. And if you have any questions or reflections about that, we can talk about that after the Dhamma talk. So I'll begin as usual with the homage to the Triple Gem. Namo tasa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa 
Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami These days, I have been studying the history of Buddhism. It's a good thing to do, having a look at the history of Buddhism. There are various ways to do that. Some of you might have done some of this yourself through reading a text or hearing a talk or maybe visiting some places where Buddhism is a little bit older than it is here in our part of the world. And it's good, it's helpful to do that. I think that when we look at the past of our traditions, plural, many Buddhist traditions, when we look at the history, we find that we are part of the great flow of the Sangha across time and across space. We find that The bodhisattvas stand on the shoulders of the bodhisattvas. That awakening beings become awakening beings through their relationships with other other awakening beings. So as I was saying, I think that... uh, that it's helpful for us to learn something about the history of our traditions, the Buddhist traditions, and to place ourselves in that great stream of uh, care and relationship that has happened across time and across space. And as I said, the bodhisattvas stand on the shoulders of the other bodhisattvas, that uh, awakening beings become awakening beings by their relationships, by the way in which we can uh, support our own practice through the practice of those who came before us. But even looking at the most beautiful statue or the most 
impressive painting or the most precise mandala depicting the cosmos or reading the wisest words. None of those things will really help unless you're open to that practice. There's a uh, very, what I find, amusing way that the Buddha spoke about this so in, uh, in the, the text called the Dhammapada. So the Dhammapada is very, uh, probably one of the most well-known collections of teachings of the historical Buddha uh, from 2,600 or so years ago. It's... Uh, it's various verses that are actually extracted from other places in the text. So from the Vinaya, which is the monastic rules and and uh, the stories about how those rules came about, and from the suttas, those, uh, the discourses of the Buddha and his students. And he says, the Buddha says, even if a fool spends a lifetime in the presence of the wise people. They do not understand the Dhamma just as a spoon does not understand the flavor of the soup. Just as a spoon doesn't understand the flavor of the soup. That's the part I think is funny. <laughs> and we should be clear that when the when the Buddha speaks about a fool, or a foolish person, we should say a person who behaves foolishly, because a fool is not an intrinsic quality that is fixed, right? The way that the Buddha understood uh, the difference between a fool and a wise person was by their actions. And we weren't necessarily intrinsically one or the other or born that way. Even the Buddha himself had to find his wisdom. He had to discover it. So, but the point that he's making here is that there is a practice that is necessary in order for us to benefit from the Dhamma, even the most profound Dhamma, even the most beautiful Dhamma, even the most wise Dhamma. And before I go on to say what that practice is, we might say what it's not. So what it's not is, um, again, this uh, kind of behavior, the, the Buddha goes on there in the Dhammapada, he says, unwise folks act as if they're not even their own friends. Hmm. And they perform evil actions, or you could say harmful or unskillful actions, which yield bitter fruit. So that's how you know that you're headed in the wrong direction, right? That kind of that kind of uh, choices in your life. And again, at any moment, 
you can make a different choice. You can open to some kind of wisdom. And so, but what is the practice that helps with that? So, so I want to suggest that uh, that the practice, one one important way that we can frame the practice is understanding your own mind. Understanding your own mind. And that is a pretty tall order. <laughs> that is uh, not always a simple thing to do. Mm. Uh, in fact, I would say it takes quite some effort. There's recently a very interesting article by Joseph Goldstein, a well-known lay teacher here in the United States who uh, has practiced in various Buddhist lineages and overseas also. And he said, oh, yes. You know, we can have all sorts of insights, but uh, seeing into our unskillful actions is a very, very difficult task. It's a very, very difficult task. So how is it? How is it to go about understanding the mind? So there are a number of ways that the practice, that the Dhamma teachings have told us how to relate to this task before us of understanding the mind. Uh, first, we might ask ourselves what's meant by mind. So there are many different words for mind in the suttas, in the teachings of early Buddhism and in later Buddhism as well. Uh, this word, I'm using this word mind, a very general word, intentionally, because it includes, uh, you could say, all of the, uh, the cognitive experience or all of the mental experience that is expressed in these other ways, in these other frameworks as different parts. But here's an interesting definition, again, looking at the Dhammapada. So that's my text for today. We're going to look at various verses from the Dhammapada. So looking at the Dhammapada, the, one of the definitions that we see of mind here is mind, that which quivers and shakes, hard to guard or protect, hard to curb or uh, restrain, to hold back. The discerning ones, the discerning people, the discerning practitioners, straighten it out like a fletcher straightens an arrow. Mind, that which quivers and shakes. In fact, in the next verse, he goes on with this shaking metaphor. Like a fish pulled from the sea and cast upon the shore. Right? When you pull the fish out of the water and throw it on the ground, the mind flounders about, thrashes about, trying to throw off Mara's sway. So who is Mara? Mara is 
the personification, the face that we put on unskillfulness, on the things that get in the way of awakening. That's one way to think about Mara. And this about the mind that quivers, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I think that one of the interesting things that can happen for us as practitioners is that we somehow think that um, the only important experience is calm. And it's true that the practice is about peace, is about leading to peace. But the fact is that the nature of mind is often to move. And until we settle into an acceptance of that, we will always be struggling against our own mind. Right? The mind is of the nature to respond, to quiver, to shake with different impacts of things. And until we are prepared to find our peace with that, then we'll always be struggling. Then we'll always be fighting with ourselves. Huh? There is also an aspect of total stillness. We can talk about that aspect of mind in another minute or two. But I just want to point out this, this nature of responsiveness of the mind is something that is um, it's important for us to find our ability to be present with that. And in fact, it can teach us something. That is where insight comes from. So when we talk about the distinction between samadhi or concentration practice and insight or vipassana, vipassana practice, these things are talking about the tendency toward stillness versus the tendency toward movement or activity, right? So this side, the vipassana, the activity side, that's the site where insight comes up, right? The stillness helps. The stillness is for steadying, for slowing down, for actually making it possible to see this side, actually. There's much that cannot be seen until we find our steadiness. But I just want to just want to point out that uh, the movement of the mind is not in itself a problem. It actually can be a tool. But I think that oftentimes we come to practice with the idea that somehow that, that movement is uh, obstructing us. But it doesn't, it actually it doesn't have to be that way. So when we think about how to study this mind that moves, that quivers and shakes, that flops about like a fish, <laughs> how would you study such a thing? Uh -huh. How would you study such a thing? So one of the frameworks that the Buddha gave us is the five aggregates, five khandas in Pali or skandhas in Sanskrit. I like to come back to these over and over again. Why? Because the Buddha said that at all of the stages of awakening, and even the fully awakened beings could benefit by meditating on the five aggregates. 
that that would be a pleasant abiding and it would also be something that would lead you forward on the path, no matter where you were on the path. So we look at the five aggregates model. So what is the five aggregates? Is body, and then Vedana, which is, uh, so Rupa is body, and then Vedana means the feeling tone or the kind of uh, pleasant or unpleasant or neutralness of a contact, an experience, a sensation. And then we have perception, so identifying it, putting a label on it or a word or a concept, knowing what it is. And then, uh, so that's sanya is the Pali word for perception. And then you have sankara. Sankara is a very complicated phenomena, but in this particular framework, it means the responses and reactions that we have to what we perceive, the story we build about it, the liking or disliking, various other kinds of responses and reactions. And then you have vinyana, the consciousness, consciousness itself. So we have the qualities of, so we have the body, body as an instrument of interaction, with the world and with ourselves, actually, interestingly. And then we have qualities of mind. Yeah. Three qualities of mind that arise together with contact, together with different experiences that we have, sensations that we have. And then we have consciousness itself. And again, how to think about this, because we typically think, or or you might typically think of uh, consciousness uh, in one in one way that is identified with yourself as a person. Like I've had this consciousness since as long as I can remember. I always wake up the next day, right? I remember my dreams, and so like that. But actually, again, using our Dhammapada definitions today, uh, we have this lovely, lovely teaching, which is at the very beginning, the very first two verses of the Dhammapada. Maybe some of you know this. We could, uh, we could, be, I could like, we could chant it every time. <laughs> that might be helpful. All things are preceded by the mind. Now, I'm using a translation by my good friend, Bhante Sujato, my good friend up there in New Jersey. Bhante Sujato. Uh, All things are preceded by the mind. He uses this word here, surpassed by the mind, but actually it's like, you could say, initiated, perhaps manasetta, by the mind, created by the mind. If one speaks or acts with a corrupted mind, he's using this word corrupted, which I don't like particularly, I would say, I would say something more like impure, unskillful, deluded, 
then suffering follows. Just as the track follows the wheel. And then the next verse, if it says, all things are preceded by the mind. So in case you forgot three, three sentences ago, all things are preceded by the mind. All things. Meaning you can only experience the world with your mind. And they are initiated by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, or we could say a clear mind, then happiness follows like the shadow that never leaves. Like the shadow that never leaves. So this is important to understand that uh, that to study the mind is the awareness becoming aware of itself in various forms, right? And that can happen in ways that are quite vast, completely boundless, or that can happen in ways that are very constrained and tight and difficult. All of those different things can happen in ways that are pleasant, that are unpleasant, that are neutral. And that sense of continuity is the... Um, the place where we need to really study more carefully so that we can begin to see the impermanent nature, the fleeting nature of all of the attributes of mind, including the consciousness itself, right? Because that is one of its defining characteristics, the impermanence of mind. In fact, the impermanence of all things that we experience all things. So some people might say, well, what about Buddha nature? Huh? What about Buddha nature? Isn't there this thing, this thing called Buddha nature, which is beautiful and uh, intrinsic? And I want to say this, let's if we, if we think about what is meant by Buddha nature, which is a term that uh, arose in Buddhism maybe about 500 or so years after the Buddha's time, four or 500 years after the Buddha's time, you could say, okay, Buddha and nature. So it's of the nature of Buddha. And what do we mean by Buddha in this case? We mean awake, aware, and in harmony without any resistance, right? That is what a Buddha is. Somebody who has completely dropped off any confusion or resistance to reality as it is. So aware of that, awake to that, which is reality as it is. Okay, so if that is your true nature, well, of course, the answer would be, well, duh. <laughs> yes, of course. 
right? You must be within reality, right? Despite what some people say, we are not a figment of some machine's imagination. Mm -hmm. You must be completely embedded in reality. You are within reality. You are an expression of reality. And are you awake? Are you aware? You are, in fact, aware to some extent. And are you in harmony with that? Well, you couldn't possibly be out of harmony with that, with reality, right? It's impossible. You must be of the same nature as reality because you are reality. You are an expression of reality. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's ironic in a way when people get excited about Buddha nature and they're like, oh, it's this wonderful thing and it makes us all special. And, you know, and it's kind of like, well, no, Buddha nature is actually the most mundane thing in the world. It's just how it is. In fact, it's quite interesting that there are some suttas, in fact, where Buddha nature is metaphorically, symbolically described as being like a jewel in your pocket. And you know what I want to say to that? Bah humbug. No. Negative. Wrong. <laughs> Buddha nature cannot be something that isn't completely pervasive in you. It has to be the whole thing. It's not like some little thing you could drop. <laughs> you see? Because it is about the nature of reality. It's not a jewel in your pocket. It's the whole kid and caboodle. It's the whole disastrous mess. It's all that. All of that, through and through. It is you through and through. And for that reason, we say, you couldn't possibly obstruct it, even from yourself. You can't even keep it from yourself. But you need to make an effort, actually, to see it. Right? You need to make an effort to actually begin to understand what we're talking about here. Because as I said, you can see as many beautiful Buddhas as you like, you can visit as many monasteries as you like. And that is like, as we would say in Zen, like eating a painted rice cake. It doesn't satisfy your hunger. It doesn't take care of the problem. The thing that takes care of the problem is the insight, is those aha moments of seeing Buddha nature absent of you. Now, that might not make any sense, but that is what has to happen. Seeing Buddha nature when you're not there.
So it's not enough to simply be mindful or to be present. That's the first of the factors of awakening, mindfulness. But the second factor, hello, is investigation. (laughs) So you might bump along and fully enjoying the flow of all experience and so on. That's all lovely. But without investigation, there will be no awakening. There will be no true understanding of the reality that you represent. So I hope that if if you take away only one thing from today's talk, it's that I lit a fire under you that you need to practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.